and verse 12. Last week, I kind of went scorched earth on this whole passage from 9, 9, 11 through 28. And it was sort of like plowing through the territory we're going into. So now we'll do more of a recon mission and get some of the details, starting with Hebrews 9, 12. And we'll be going elsewhere in the scripture also. Maybe even considering some of the parables of the lost and found. Now we've considered Hebrews and the influencers of the pastor teacher. They are many. They are those who heard the Lord personally speaking of this so great salvation, which we cannot afford to neglect in our time either. He had the influencers of Peter, perhaps Paul, very strongly, maybe John, not maybe, John. And, of course, he had a heavy reliance on the Septuagint scriptures, some of which he modified and adapted under the Spirit's guidance for his own purpose, some of which he cited directly, others' passages he alluded to. There's no other book in the New Testament where there are more references to the Old Testament scriptures, the Septuagint. An exception may be Revelation with its 732 allusions to Old Testament passages, never quoted out outrightly, but at least 732 allusions to the Old Testament scriptures. But just as notable, however, and what I want to even put stronger accent on, a stronger stress on, is the fact that more notable is the independent importance of Hebrews. It's importance all by itself. It's innovation. This writer, the more I study, the more I'm Maybe I'm amazed, except for the maybe. He has some innovations that are shocking. He makes some moves exegetically under the Holy Spirit that are both earth and heaven shaking. And Hebrews 12.26 says that literally. And so we're going to consider the innovations because... The work of Jesus Christ, we're going to see a differentiation of our consciousness on this for I'm asking a question. Now, when Jesus was in the temple at age 12, missing for three days, Mary was out of her mind, of course. When she found him, she saw him in the temple, and he was asking questions and bringing forth teachings, both of which caused the doctors of the law to have their jaws dropped in total astonishment. And I noted that both his questions and his teachings were awe-inspiring. And so I want to ask a question today. Does Hebrews 9.12 deal with two actions, two separate actions of Jesus Christ First being his passion, suffering, and death, whereby he brought about eternal redemption and the objective purification of all sins. Second being his blood offering in heaven, a heavenly perpetual blood offering that he makes in heaven, having made eternal redemption. Is that a separate act when he goes into the Holy of Holies by his own blood, through his own blood, or there's a possibility, it says, with his own blood. And in that action, did he not purify sins objectively, but by that action purify the consciousness of sins subjectively? One of the reasons why the persons that this pastor was writing to were considering return to Judaism was because they knew that Jesus died for their sins. They knew that he purified sins, but they still had the consciousness of sins, and they thought that maybe if we go back, some of those rituals did give us a kind of temporary and partial cleansing of the conscience. We felt a little better after the animal sacrifices, and our bodies were cleansed with water and blood, and our sacrifices, they did give us, and we're going to teach this later on, they actually gave them a kind of an assuaging of the conscience, consciousness of sin. Hebrews deals with the conscience 
as no other place in the Bible teaches it. So we can't just do a straight-on teaching on the conscience from all the scriptures, as I've done before. We've got to see the innovation that this writer makes on the conscience, and it means consciousness, but specifically consciousness of sins. So was there an act by which Jesus' death purified sins per se, all sins of the whole world? Was there a separate act when he went into the heavenly holy of holies with his own blood, and therefore makes a perpetual heavenly blood offering that serves to purge the consciousness of guilt, unresolved guilt, the consciousness of sin. So did one act purify sins objectively, and a second act, his act of great archpriest, nobody else in the Bible, in the New Testament, calls Jesus great archpriest, refers to him as a priest at all, none, except for the Hebrews author. And he makes a great deal of doctrine about this from the Melchizedek declaration in Psalm 110.4, which he links with the session of the king in Psalm 110.1. Did his action, whether you want to translate it dia through his own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, or whether you want to call it by his own blood, or dia also has a sense of attendant circumstances. Is there a sense now, and I know this is, a, this is where it gets a little ticklish, is there a sense where it can say he went into the holy of holies in the heavens with his own blood? Now, the reason I'm taking that question seriously is because in the climactic passage of Hebrews, the author says, you have not come to Mount Sinai with its burnings and its threatenings and its thunderings and its threat of the wrath of God that made even Moses exceedingly quake and fear and tremble. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, he says, and to the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to myriads of angels in festal gathering. And we're going to do an angelology here. I've just spent several days studying angelology in Karl Barth, who reviewed all of Thomas Aquinas's angelology and Pseudo-Dionysius's angelology and showed how they were both insufficient. And so this talks about Hebrews, in fact, has the profoundest statement of what the angels do, what the angels are. It's probably the best angelology, another innovation by this Hebrews author. You have come to myriads of angels. That's an uncountable number of angelic beings in festive gathering. You have come to the spirits of just people, or the righteous, as Hebrews puts it, made perfect. And you have come to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. And then it says, and to the blood of sprinkling. You have come to the sprinkled blood, the blood of sprinkling. Now why have we come to the, what does that mean? Is it metaphorical? Is it figurative? Is it just metaphorical? Is it just figurative? Is, or is there a heavenly materiality that we have no idea about. You have come to the sprinkled blood. You've come to God, the judge of all. And notice that God, the judge of all, is juxtaposed with the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness and purification. God judges on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is one outcome for judgment for all people over the course of all time because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and because of his perpetual blood offering. Does his death serve to purify the sins of the world objectively? And I think we can say a hearty yes to that. But does his perpetual blood offering, a subsequent act of our great archpriest, purify the consciousness of sin, take away the dread and the fear of torment, the timidity of approaching God and of being a witness of Jesus Christ, and the unresolved guilt, which is the source of virtually every psychiatric 
psychological problem in the world today, at the root of it, at the base of it, virtually almost every one. That's the question I'm asking. So this is one of Hebrews' innovations. It's a shocker. So let's look at it. Let's go right to the text. It's always smart, too. We preach Christ Jesus the Lord. That's what I thought of first thing in this, this morning is this. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus the Lord. I asked certain people recently how church was because I didn't go to church with them, but I said, how was church? And they said it was great. The worship was wonderful, but the message... The guy just gave his testimony, and then there was a visiting pastor, and the next week a guy just gave his testimony, and I said, well, that sounds good, but I'm thinking, that sounds good, but did, in giving his testimony, did he preach himself or Christ Jesus the Lord? What about Jesus Christ? Is he the center of the message? Is he all the message? Is he everything? If he isn't, we're not doing the job as preachers. We don't preach ourselves, and I'm not saying that's what happened. It probably was a testimony that accented Jesus Christ and his faithfulness to that person. I'm not knocking it at all, but it made me think of 2 Corinthians 4-5. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your slaves, for his sake. For he who said, light, shine in darkness, has shone into our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, shines in the face of our great archpriest who appears in heaven for us, shines in the face of Jesus Christ who has made purification for sins, shines in the face of Jesus Christ who stands face to face with the Father with his perpetual heavenly blood offering so that the Father cannot... The Father is incapable, because of his Son, of remembering your sins again, ever again. God made himself, God the omnipotent God, made himself incapable to recall, remember sins. I will forgive their sins and they will, I will remember their iniquity no more. He forgives our sins because of the first act of Jesus Christ. He remembers them no more because of the perpetual heavenly blood offering. The perpetual heavenly blood offering means that we don't have to do anything to assuage or alleviate a guilty conscience. We just need to be taught about this second act, this perpetual blood offering that purifies the conscience from dead works. Now, dead works is another thing we'll look at in Hebrews 9.14. It means, first of all, it means dead works means dead works in the sense that they are works that lead to death. Therefore, they are sins per se. They are also works, as others have made the case, including Lane, they're works like sacrifices that we have to perform like under the Levitical cultus or under some kind of penance that somebody in a dress hands out to us. And we have to do that. And that's a dead work because it doesn't do anything and it, doesn't, it may assuage your conscience for a minute or two, but it doesn't do it completely. But I think dead works refers to the works that we do to assuage a guilty conscience because we're not aware of the second act of Jesus Christ in going into the Holy of Holies. And I think this is one of the reasons why he said to Mary, stop clinging to me. He, there was something he still had to do. He had to ascend and go into the Holy of Holies by means of his own blood and per perform this second act and make this offering of his blood in order to purify the conscience from dead works. The need for penance, the need to do some kind of works of altruism all the time because we are bothered constantly and burdened continually by the evil of unresolved guilt. So here's these people he's writing to. They want to go back and return to Judaism for more than one reason, not just fear of persecution, not just fear of social ostracism and economic catastrophe, all of which they had experienced 16 years before this in AD 49 in the Claudian expulsion in Rome, but 
because they actually still felt a guilty conscience even though they knew that Jesus died for their sins. And so we did get a little bit of something from ritual. We did, you got to admit it, we did back then get a little bit from offering these animal sacrifices, from the sprinkling of the blood and the animal sacrifice. We did get kind of a little bit of a temporary relief. And this writer is saying, I'm going to tell you how you can have complete relief. I'm going to tell you about the perpetual offering of Jesus Christ, his, not only his singular, finished, once and for all sacrifice for sins, but his blood offering that purges your consciousness completely from sins, from a consciousness of sins, so that you may serve the living God in reality and in truth. To serve the living God requires the purification of the conscience. Does the purification of the conscience then require, I don't want to say more than, but does it require other than or on top of the death of Christ for sins, does it require the blood offering, the perpetual heavenly blood offering? You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just righteous people, that is, made complete. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, which is eloquent because it speaks better things than the blood of Abel. What about this blood? Is there, as Richard Hayes suggested in his treatment of Hebrews, is there a kind of heavenly materiality a heavenly literality where we can speak of heavenly and perpetual blood without thinking of the crass literalism of carrying a pot of blood into heaven like some have made, but is there something in the heavenlies, something in the heavenlies that when Paul went there and was ascended through to the third heaven, I'm not using my notes again, when Paul was ascended into the heavens, into the third heaven, he saw and heard things which he said they're unlawful for me to speak about. He couldn't talk about them. I think some of those things at least were hinted at in the innovations this Hebrews author made. This also makes me think that perhaps there are more innovations without going away from the rootedness in the scripture. There are still more innovations to be made on the level of our time, not inspired on the level of biblical writers, but helpful on the level of our own time. This writer needed to show something that was not shown in any other biblical New Testament writing that the perpetual blood offering of Jesus Christ served not only to purify sins in an objective sense out there, but to purify the consciousness of sin, which frees people to become servants of the living God. We preach Christ in you, the hope of glory, teaching every person we can, warning every person we can, in order that we may present every person complete, every person we can. And as a pastor, I wouldn't be able to present you complete unless I knew that you were completely alleviated from a consciousness of sin. And that's what Hebrews does for us. So let's approach it in a way that's safe. When we ask these questions, sometimes people say, well, you're treading on dangerous ground. I would say that I'm treading on dangerous ground if I didn't study this question for hours and hours and days and days and maybe even months before I brought it to you. That's what I did with universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. It was shocking when I dropped that bomb, but the bomb dropped on me nine months before I even hinted at anything about it. So similarly with this. Now, Hebrews 9, notice this. He entered once and for all through the sanctuary. He's going first to the second act that we're talking about, the second act of the divine man. Not by, and that's where dia comes in, the preposition dia. It can be by or through. Through is the most likely of the uses of, or the most frequent uses of dia, D-I-A, like we get our word diagonal. It's through. 
But there's also a dia with the use of attendant circumstances. It can be translated with. And that's the question I'm asking. Is it talking about him saying with? He entered once and, all, and for all through the sanctuary, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by dia, his own blood, or through his own blood, or with his own blood, having obtained, and that's our word herisco, which I want to play on a little bit. Herisco, that's a note I want to play on a little bit here. Herisco, H-E-U-R-I-S-K-O, it'll be in the print. Having obtained or found or discovered eternal redemption. And so there's an order here. He goes into the Holy of Holies with his own blood, having already obtained eternal redemption. Where? On the cross. He secured it on earth, in a work on earth. Now he does a work in heaven, which suffices to cleanse the conscience, the subjective inner part completely, the consciousness of sin, unresolved guilt, with its fear that has torment. John hit it a little bit, but he only hinted at it without really talking about Jesus as great archpriest. He did say he's our advocate, that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the propitiation for the sins, not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. And then he said in 1 John 4, 17, fear has torment. Fear has torment. Fear connected to guilt. Guilt links with fear, which is the torment or the fear of punishment that's going to come to us. We may not even be aware of what we're guilty about. It may be something because of projection from the air, the aerial, and it may be what one scholar called aerial miasma. That's why the heavens needed to be purified, because of the pollution of sin reaching the heavens. The heavens had to be purified with better sacrifices than animal sacrifices. We're going to hit that in Hebrews 9.23. The heavens are connected with the consciousness of man, the interiority of man. They had to be purified with better sacrifices than the sacrifices that purified the tent, symbolizing the cosmos, in the Old Testament Levitical cultus. Better sacrifices, plural, is fulfilled in the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which purified the heavens, got rid of the aerial miasma. We have no idea how far our individual sins reach in terms of affecting other people, not only in our family, not only those we sin against directly, but our nation, our community, the cosmos, the cosmos, the universe itself, reaching heavens. What did God say when he spoke about Sodom and Gomorrah? He said, their sin is crying out all the way up here to the heavens. And so that's coming up too. He entered once and for all through the holy place, the holy of holies, through the sanctuary or the holies, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained herisco, meaning to find or to discover after a diligent search, but also there is a nuance that's more important than that, not only to find after a diligent search, but to obtain at great cost, to obtain or procure or secure at great cost. This made me recall Lonergan's thesis 15 from his book called The Redemption, for which I waited for years, and when I got it, I ate it up. He says in Thesis 15, and I've re related to this back when we were dealing with the redemption as a mediation and an end. He said redemption, and that happens to be the subject here, eternal redemption in Hebrews 9.12, denotes not only an end, that's a goal, but also a mediation, namely the payment of the price. Christ's, the mediator's vicarious passion and death on account of sins and for sinners, our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood. Interestingly, Lonergan separates the two. His death, his vicarious passion and death on account of sins and for sinners from our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood. He separates the two, interestingly enough, though he doesn't elaborate it. His meritorious obedience, 
and the power of the risen Lord, and the intercession of the eternal priest. Every one of these is a theme in Hebrews. He doesn't say so. I do. It is to be noted that there is an inventory of the details or particulars of redemption as denoting a mediation. And for the sake of clarity, I'll enumerate these particulars, and by enumerating, I'll distinguish what I call seven particulars of redemption. One, the payment of a price, which we're going to hit on in a moment. Two, Christ, the mediator's vicarious passion and death on account of sins. I'm going to split this into a differentiation to say, thirdly, Christ, the mediator's vicarious passion and death for sinners. Dying for sins is one thing. Dying for sinners is another. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15.3. But he also died when he died, all died with him. All sinners died with him. There's an advance. There's a difference between or a distinction made between, and they, we're rightly dividing the word of truth here, making differentiations in our consciousness so that we think more accurately about things and especially about Christ and the word of God. He his death for sins is one thing. His death for sinners is another thing in the same death. And then so I split those two up. And then fourth, Christ the mediator's sacrifice offered in his blood. That's a sacrifice made when he went into the heavenly holy of holies. Now, others think that he did all this at the cross, and I even suggested, is that true? I don't think it is. I think there's two separate acts here. Christ the mediator's sacrifice offered in his blood. Fifth, his meritorious obedience. Sixth, the power of the risen Lord. Seventh, the intercession of the eternal priest. So there's a kind of sevenfold revelation of the majesty of God's saving mercy and free grace in this little thesis of Lonergan. And I'm giving lower blade data on that, meaning bringing scriptures, the lower blade, up to meet this high blade of a theological thesis. Every one of these particulars is a theme in Hebrews. Let me just say this quickly. Christ, the mediator's vicarious passion and death on account of sins, is found in Hebrews 1.3, right in the exordium. And all of Hebrews is a fanning out of the first four verses of Hebrews 1, which is a single periodic sentence, a long single periodic sentence, an introduction or exordium. And the first reference we have then to Christ's death for, or purification for sins are on account of sins, Hebrews 1.3, and then throughout Hebrews 9 and 10, as we're seeing. Christ, the mediator's vicarious passion and death for sinners is found in Hebrews 2.9, our title verse. We see Jesus who tasted death for everyone. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, who tasted or experienced to the dregs death, which is the wages of sin for everyone. So his death was not only for sins, to purify sins, but for sinners. And that means that he tasted death for sinners, all sinners. That's all, incidentally, all sinners are all who sinned, which is all humankind. And so notice that we've bifurcated Christ's death on account of sins and Christ's death for sinners. Not to make it two deaths, but one death that takes care of both of these situations. There are two distinct particulars of the redemption. His death on account of sins is one thing, for he made purification of sins in Hebrews 1.3. His passion and death for sinners is another, in that his death served also to save sinners. I like what Paul said. This is a faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom he said, I am chief. So I know that my friend Dan, incidentally, who got me, Dan Santilli, who really got me one of the best research books I've ever seen or recommended it recently, and I'm working off that now. Once in a while, he'll call me chief, and I know what he means, chief of sinners, of course. So that's 1 Timothy 1.15. We may rightly divide between Christ's death on account of sins, 1 Corinthians 15.3, and Christ's death for sinners, 2 Corinthians 5.14. On both counts, his passion and death have universally saving impact, for Jesus Christ the righteous one is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2.2, 2, and when Christ 
the one who was made to be sin for us died, all sinners died. 2 Corinthians 5.14, I think we dealt with that recently. This is the price by which Jesus obtained eternal redemption. So he didn't just find it or discover it after diligent search. He bought it with inestimable price. Aeonion lutrosin uramanos, which means he found or discovered or purchased, we could say, in our sense here, eternal redemption. It's a verb used in the parable of the lost sheep, incidentally, this word herisco. It's used in the parable of the lost sheep. The owner of the sheep, he had a hundred, he lost one, one wandered away. He made a very diligent, perhaps even we could say a desperate search to find the one. And when he found him, herisco, he came and called all the neighbors in to rejoice. That's the value he had on this sheep. The owner of the sheep rejoices having found that sheep. That's Luke 15, verses 4 and 5, and 6, in fact, Eurisco times 3. It's also used for the lost valuable coin that the woman with 10 coins finds. Her whole wealth is in 10 coins. She finds it after thorough searching. It's used in the parable of the prodigal son who was found, Herisco, after having been lost and made alive after having been dead. As we've seen, the verb is used of a man who finds a treasure in a field. And this is where I want to give a little bit more of a, some more flesh on the bones of this. I've talked about it a couple times before. Herisco is used about the man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. Was it buried? We don't know. It was hidden. He found it. And then he went and sold all that he had. And then it doesn't say he bought the treasure. It says he bought the field. Now, Jesus, when he began to teach parables, brought forth a parable called the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower found in Mark 4, Luke 8, Matthew 13, where it has the variation of the parable of the kingdom of the heavens. Jesus said in the teaching of the parable of the sower, do you get this parable? Do you get it? Do you understand it? And he said, if you don't understand this parable, you, how will you understand all of the parables? Meaning that suggesting that the parable of the sower is an interpretation that will help you whenever you go into any of the interpretation of any of the parables. It's the primal parable. But when he was talking about this prime parable, by which you will know all the parables. You know what he said when he talked about the sower? He said the field is the world, the cosmos. The field is the cosmos. The treasure in the field, then we know from other passages like Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself in order to secure a people for his own possession, a treasure of his own possession. It's the new covenant community, which is the preview of a universally redeemed humanity in the cosmos. He didn't just buy the treasure or get the treasure. He bought the field. He redeemed the cosmos. All created reality. He redeemed all of created reality and within it the new covenant community which is the people for his own possession which is you on the level of our time which is in turn a depiction or a prolepsis, a preview of a universally redeemed humanity, for he has reconciled the heavens and the earth. So as Jesus said, don't you get this parable? Or how will you understand all the parables? So one of the parables of the kingdom from the heavens, Jesus interprets by saying, the field is the world. The man who discovers the treasure in the, in the cosmos had been searching for the treasure. It implies that he went to this field from outside of the field. Jesus came into this world from outside this world. He's the man. The man in the parable is Jesus Christ. This is what we call Christological interpretation. The implication is if he buys that field, he has come to that field from outside the field. And if the field is the world, then he's come out from the world. He has come into the world. God sent his son into the world to save the world. He bought the field. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to buy that treasure. Incidentally, when he found the treasure, he 
lifted it up of his hiding place, and then it said he reburied it. He reburied it. He hid it again. This means that the new covenant community is something that God raised up from the dead, but he hid us again because we're hid with Christ now in God. We were hidden again. We were a treasure hidden, buried, dead in trespasses and sins. He finds us, but then he hides us again. This time he hides us in himself. He hides us in Christ. We are hid with Christ in God. Our life is hid with Christ in God. We died, and our life is hid with Christ in God. And when he is glorified and comes in glory, we will appear with him in glory. And so we're in this TIB, this time in between right now. So this is another variation of the parable of the, of the sower. It's called one of the parables of the kingdom from the heavens. The man who discovers the treasure in the cosmos has been searching for the treasure, which in, in, indicates his value of the treasure, that it's infinitely valuable to him. He had, some, he had come from outside the field or the cosmos where the treasure was located, for it says he bought the field. I found a treasure, Father. What should I do? Buy the treasure? No, buy the field, son. Buy the field. Redeem the whole cosmos. And so the whole cosmos, all creation, is waiting for, for the sons of God, the apocalypse of the sons of God to come, waiting for the liberation from the slavery to corruption that was purchased by Jesus Christ. He bought the field. The man came from above, this man. He came from the kingdom of heaven. This is why he called it, this is a parable of the kingdom from the heavens. He's the man from heaven, the second man in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, 45 to 49. He went and sold all that he had, and that includes his associations with heaven, with his father in heaven, with the adoring angels in heaven, to buy the field and obtain and secure the treasure. So here's two noteworthy things, and I wish I could spend all day on these parables, but I can't. He yes, you can, someone says, but I won't. How's that? I know you're hungry. He discovers the treasure, and he buys the field. Both a diligent search, it says, and a great cost are indicated by this. A diligent search and a great cost. He bought the field. He found the treasure. So both the diligent search and the price is indicated. So note well, he didn't just buy the treasure, he bought the field. Jesus redeemed the whole cosmos and within it the new covenant community, which is the preview of a universally redeemed humanity where all of humanity from all times will live contemporaneously through resurrection in a reconciled heavens and earth. And so the... Jesus redeemed the whole cosmos, and within it, the new covenant community, which is the preview of a universally redeemed humanity, the treasure in the cosmos. <clears throat> Similarly, in the parable of the pearl of great price, he found a pearl of great price, the same man, and secured it at great price after it was found. Notice that both the field and the sea are where these invaluable objects are found. The sea speaks, among other things, of the dead that are given up. The sea gives up the dead that are in it because Christ conquered death. And it also speaks in Revelation 5.13, I heard all creation, panton ketesis, in the sea, on the earth, above the earth, under the earth, and in the sea, all praising God for the salvation that he wrought in the Lamb. And so the, par the parable of the pearl in the sea and the treasure in the earth contemplates a universal redemption, contemplates a cosmic redemption. The treasure in the field is said to be hidden, perhaps it's buried, speaking also of the dead and the buried. When the man finds it, he hides it again, and this shows how the dead are raised, then hid again, the second time, hid with Christ in God, but to be manifest in glory when he comes when he appears, when he appears the second time or in another sense in his third coming. The field and the sea are suggestive of the whole of terrestrial creation, which cosmos evokes the idea of universality. The man bought the field. Jesus redeemed the world and secured the treasure, a people for his own possession, Titus 2.14. And this relates in context to Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, salvation for all men. 
that is, all human beings in all times and places. In the same context, Titus 2.12 teaches us how to live in this time in between. The same grace teaches us how to live in TIB, the time in between, soberly, righteously, and justly in this cosmos, in this age. And then Titus 2.13, same context, great God and Savior is used for Jesus Christ. Hebrews calls him great archpriest. Great God means he's the God of all. Great Savior means he's the Savior of all. Great archpriest means he's the archpriest representing us all. Great Savior means he's the Savior of all. Great shepherd of the sheep whom God raised from the dead and brought up from the realm of the dead is the shepherd of all the sheep of all mankind. And therefore he became the great God and Savior by paying the inestimable cost to secure our redemption. He did this by experiencing death, the wages of sin for everyone, and that's how Jesus obtained eternal redemption. The first act finished at the cross to Telestai. It does not say eternal redemption for us, incidentally, in Hebrews 9.12, thankfully. You say, why thankfully? Because it's precisely the subject of Hebrews 9.12, it says, having obtained eternal redemption. When it simply says he obtained eternal redemption, he doesn't have to add for us because it's for all. And of course it's for us because it's for all. Eternal redemption per se. Eternal redemption, period. That means eternal redemption of the cosmos and all of humanity in all of its times, secured at the cross. He objectively then paid or purified Sins, sins per se, the sins of the world, purified, gone. Whether you're guilty for them or not, he's purified them. Whether you feel guilty or not, they're purified. And this would be good counsel for people, I think. But do they get that counsel? No, they don't get that counsel. They're told how wonderful they are without the blood of Christ, which is the most tragic advice you can ever receive. Christ, the mediator's sacrifice offered in blood, is the subject of Hebrews 9.12. Having obtained eternal redemption, he entered the heavenly holy of holies with his own blood. Two acts. One took care of the objective purification of sins. The second one takes care of the continual purgation of the consciousness of sin, the feelings that we feel of inexplainable, inexplicable dread, Fear having torment and the fear of punishment for something we did, whether we remember what it was or not. Unresolved guilt, which is the greatest evil that can enter into the consciousness and pollute it. And so that second act, the offering of his perpetual, the perpetual offering of his heavenly blood, which we've come to is such a remarkable and wonderful innovation of the writer to the Hebrews that it moves us into a realm of worship and praise that we've never been before, a new room. We've entered a new room. And so this arguably distinguishes two actions on the part of Messiah, Jesus. One, his securing of eternal redemption. Two, his entry into the heavenly holy of holies through his own blood. His blood has the power of perpetually purging and completely purging the conscience to complete you as worshipers, the PT says. So why would you ever consider returning to the sacrifices offered under the Levitical cultists because they make you feel better for an hour after the service? They make you feel better for an hour after the Mass. They make you feel better for an hour after your confession. They may even make you not want to do it again for at least an hour after you've rebounded. We have to be careful even of the doctrine of rebound because if we make that a human action that assuages the conscience without taking into account the divine action of the Messiah with his perpetual heavenly blood, I don't even have to say I sinned. I have to just simply say, well, thank you for your perpetual blood offering, Lord Jesus. That I'm forgiven, that my conscience is cleansed. And you know what that does? That's a greater incentive. It, let's just say this. It's a greater disincentive to sin 
than you could ever get by penance or that you could ever get from sorrow for sins. It is the incentive not to continue in unbelief, in guilt, in fear, in worry, in anxiety. It's the disincentive toward all things like that. Greater disincentive than you can get by even your own personal acknowledgement. I'm not against acknowledging our sins. The Bible says that we'll prosper if we acknowledge them when we are aware of sins that we've committed. But I'm much more emphasizing the second divine act of the man Christ Jesus. So one of these actions is related to the obtaining of eternal redemption and of purification of sins, objectively speaking, the other is for the purification of the consciousness of sins, subjectively speaking. How much more shall the blood of Christ? If the blood of bulls and goats serve to purify the flesh, and even suggesting even the conscience for a little while, if they did, and they did, didn't they? If they serve to purify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Posso malan, he says, a fortiori argument. How much more shall the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ that you come to when you come to the heavenly Jerusalem, how much more shall the blood of Christ, the perpetual blood offering of the heavenly blood, purify your consciousness, the way the Hebrew author translates sunadesis, purify your consciousness from dead works, including the need to go back and do those other sacrifices in order to serve the living God as new priests of a new creation in a new covenant community. Isn't that better? I think what he did was won back a lot of people. I think it's possible that, as Lane said, this might have been a house church in Rome that were, if they had gone that way back to the sacrifices, they might have been tempted to go in A.D. 66 or so to go celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in a little town called Old Jerusalem. If they had done that, they might have been surprised one morning to wake up to see the abomination of desolation, the armies of Rome surrounding that and putting that city under siege. They may not have been able to get out. They may have endured a fiery judgment as the temple was burned down in flames that were unquenchable. Not hell, but a hell of a mess, or as my grandfather used to say, a mel of a hess. They would have been in. And so, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, because you don't recognize that I am he, you will die on account of your sin. Not go to hell, but you're going to die on account of your unbelief because in A.D. 70 and the years before that, you're going to be in Jerusalem just like you guys are today in the temple and the abomination of desolation, which is the armies of Rome, are going to lay siege to the city and you can't get out. Some will starve, some will cannibalize their children, some will suffer intolerable, intolerable horrors. Some will die and be thrown into Gehenna, the lake of fire, which is the ditch surrounding Jerusalem, the garbage dump of Jerusalem. And so this is the AD 70 trajectory. So perhaps this is all I'm going to do today because there's a lot here. But what I'm saying here arguably that Hebrews 9.12, arguably, in other words, you can make your objections to it if you want, and we may have to entertain objections and then reply to each objection. That's how Thomas did it, Aquinas. That's how I do it in my mind, in my study, in my reading. So this verse arguably distinguishes two actions on the part of Messiah Jesus. One, his securing of eternal redemption which is the purification of sins, Hebrews 1.3 and Hebrews 9.12. And secondly, his entry into the heavenly holy of holies through his own blood. With his own blood is another possibility. One of these actions is related to the obtaining of redemption and of purification of sins, objectively speaking. The other is the purification of the consciousness of sins, subjectively speaking, interiorly, in your mind, in your soul, in your consciousness. In fact, on the highest level of the human consciousness where this 
consciousness is, and it's the heavenly connection. The fourth level of the human consciousness is the heavenly connection in two ways. If it is polluted or contaminated by guilt of sin, then that is a heavenly thing that needs to be purified. It's like purifying the heavens by a greater sacrifice, the blood offering of the great archpriest in the holy of holies. Whoever, who else said that in the Bible? Did Paul? No. Did Peter? No. Did John? No. Suggested? Hinted at it? One. That's why Hebrews is important for now. That's why the Holy Spirit led us to study this, led me personally to study this, and I'm not done by a long shot, because of the innovations that it has, the insights that it has to reach our time and the people on the level of our time and to occupy us with the Messiah Jesus. So the other act is for the purification of the consciousness of sins which is achieved by the heavenly blood offering, something that could not be completely achieved by the offering of the blood of animals under the regs or regulations of the Levitical cultists. So I think this author, throughout Hebrews, he's making this case. This whole Hebrews thing is, a, is an exhortation filled with exposition to make a point. You sure you want to go back there now? With this, I think, he shut the door forever that they would never return to Judaism. Jesus' meritorious obedience is explicitly the subject of Hebrews 5.8 and 10.5 through 10, which we know from Philippians 2.8 was an obedience to the Father's merciful saving will, an nth degree obedience, I called it way back when we dealt with Philippians years and years ago. Nth degree, that means a limitless degree or an infinite degree of obedience to the extent of the death of the cross. From Romans 5.19, we know that the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, had the outcome of all who sinned being constituted as righteous. Through the disobedience of one, the many were constituted as sinners, made sinners. Through the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the many, that is all, according to 5.18 before 5.19, were made righteous, constituted righteous. Romans 5.19 and 2 Corinthians 5.19 are connected splendidly. He who knew no sin became sin, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. We, in context, is the world of humanity over the course of all time and places. We would be made the righteousness of God in him. Through the obedience of the one man, Christ Jesus, and the grace of this one man, through the cost he paid, through the exploration he made to discover this treasure and the price he paid, <clears throat> we have eternal redemption. And we have this so great salvation. This so great salvation by this so great God and Savior, this so great archpriest, this great chief shepherd, this great shepherd of the sheep, is such great salvation that you and I can't afford to neglect it. We cannot afford to neglect the feature of the gospel that's universalistic, and the church has, and that's the reason why this country is sliding down the tubes, not because of the immorality that's being taught in schools, but because the gospel hasn't been taught in churches. And that has had, what, a, it put forth an aerial miasma, a... You know what it's dead? It polluted the air. It polluted the generation. It polluted the schools. It polluted the churches. It polluted our time. It is a heavenly miasma that needs to be purified by the perpetual blood offering. If I was a teacher and I had one hour to teach children, I would teach them what I'm teaching right now, and then I'd take the firing. I'd take the court case or whatever came, the lawsuits or whatever else comes, because you told the children the truth, you damn fool, you horrible person. You told those children the truth. How dare you? 
We were just ready to castrate him or do a mastectomy on that 10-year-old girl. Well, how dare you tell them the truth of the blood offering that purifies their inner consciousness? How dare you? We will sue you. We will crucify you. We will bury you. Go ahead. Make my day. In closing, I won't go with the rest of the features, but I just, let me just re-enter this innovation of the Hebrews author. Arguably, what we have in 9.12 is the distinction between two actions on the part of Messiah Jesus. He secured eternal redemption, also known as the purification of sins objectively, on the cross. And when he said, it is finished, sins were purified, for sure. All sins of all mankind, for all time. Eternal redemption was won for everybody. The price was paid. But then his entry into the heavenly holy of holies, following his ascension, through his own blood, with his own blood, by his own blood, is the action that serves to purify the inner subjective consciousness from sin. This is the point at which this writer hammers this audience, possibly a house church in Rome, maybe a church in Jerusalem, a, ju a church of Jewish Christians or Jewish proselyte Christians, who knows? But he was emphasizing to them, you cannot go back. You cannot return. He wasn't mocking Judaism. He wasn't attacking Judaism as a religion. For all religion is is complete self-transcendence. The problem is Judaism could not bring them into a complete self-transcendence in which there was a complete purification of the consciousness. Christianity is the proper development of Judaism into completion. The Messiah is the proper completion of Judaism. And so we don't have a contrast here. We don't have a mockery here. We don't have an anti-Jewish sentiment like the anti-Semitism that's in Washington, D.C., where Satan's throne is set up. We don't have anti-Jewish sentiment, anti-Semitism. We have an, a healthy respect, a profound respect for Judaism and its system, and we also have a profound understanding that that system was not able to bring worshipers of Yahweh to completion. What did was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Lord, the great shepherd of the sheep, the great archpriest, through his offering on the cross of himself at the, at the juncture of the ages, and through his offering of his perpetual blood offering in the heavens, whereby he completes the worshipers by the complete cleansing of the conscience, which relates to complete self-transcendence, where you live beyond and outside of yourself in Christ to the glory of God. That's what it means when it says, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies which belong to God and don't become the slaves of men, the slaves of other people's ambitions, the slaves of other people's lust patterns, the slaves of other people who want to heap guilt on you. Don't become the servants and slaves of men or of women or of any persons. Why? You've been bought with a price, bought with a price. So we're going to tweak this thesis. Jesus' present ongoing appearance before God's face with his own perpetual heavenly blood, is the presence in God's face and the remembrance to God of what God required of himself to the utmost. When he looks at Jesus appearing in the heavens, for when he went into the Holy of Holies, he went into heaven itself. That's 924 of Hebrews. And when he went into heaven in itself, he appears before the Father. And the Father looks at the Son, and the Father never forgets that that, him, he, his Son, is the utmost that, the, that God gave to achieve our highest blessing, to achieve not only the forgiveness of our sins, but the inability for God to ever remember them ever again. Thank God. I, I, don't, I don't have to go through all these rigmaroles and 
hoops and dance through hoops and fire and everything else when I sin, if I sin, when I sin. I've been largely disincentivized to sin to the point where I even put a watch over my own mouth sometimes now. When I get cut off in traffic, I say, oh, faith, faith, and faith you too. And uh, it's, it, it's, it's a, because I know that the perpetual heavenly blood offering made by Messiah Jesus on my behalf and his perpetual presence appearing before God. And one of these days, the father's going to say, and the son's going to say, okay, I'm going to go get him. I'm going to go restore all things on the earth. I did buy it after all, father. I bought the field. And... I'm going to go now and redeem all creation from its slavery to corruption. I'm going to go restore all things. I'm going to go make effective forever, universally and forever, for every eye to see the reconciliations of the heavens and earth, which I already affected. How did God effect the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and earth? By the blood of his cross. You can't separate this blood offering from the restoration of all things. Ephesians 1.7, by whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness or cancellation of sins. And then 1.7 goes right into 1.9 later on and says, this is the mystery of God's will, that he might reconcile all things, that he would reconcile all things in the heavens and on earth in his son. And this is because of the blood in 1.7. Because of the blood in Colossians 1.20, Paul crowded them both in there. By the blood of the Son of his love, by the blood of the cross of the Son of his love, he reconciles everything in the heavens and on earth in him. So Jesus' present ongoing appearance before God's face with his own perpetual heavenly blood is the presence and the remembrance of what God required of himself. To pay the price for our redemption. Our knowledge of God's remembrance of the price that secured our eternal redemption and of God's inability to remember our sins is the key to a consciousness that's purified from guilt. If the consciousness is purged from guilt, then at the same time purged of dead works at least the works that we try to do to assuage the unresolved feeling of unresolved guilt. So I'll close. And I recommend if you, well, it costs a, a little bit, but the study that Dan recommended is by D, Joshua D.A. Bloor, almost blood, but it's B-L-O-O-R. It's one of the best studies I've seen, and I tried to get through the whole thing yesterday until I hit a wall and was totally and completely exhausted, but that's what we're supposed to do labor to the point of exhaustion. But this, I'm studying him, and I think it's a silver vein, and I'm very grateful for it. So I'm going to be following that track for a while. But let's close with Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. But let's read it together with 12. He entered once and for all through the sanctuary, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Having already obtained the eternal redemption, he then goes into heaven itself, 924, as we'll see later. By, through, either way you cut it, by, through, or with, his own blood is the issue. So, having obtained eternal redemption. He entered once and for all through the sanctuary, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of he goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people. He gives a sample of the sacrifices under the Old Testament that these people were tempted to return to. If they serve to sanctify for the purification of the body 
And that implies that, you know, not only did those sacrifices purify your body when the water hits you and the blood, the sprinkled blood hits you, but it also allowed you to get back into the fellowship of the people of God. So there was a measure of the alleviation of your consciousness from sin, but only a measure. It wasn't complete. Hebrews is all about the completion of the cleansing of the conscience, consciousness of sin. So if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people served to sanctify for the purification of the body, and it did, the outward man, then how much more? Every time he's talking to people who want to go and return to that system, how much more? Okay, how much more, though? How much more will the blood of the Messiah who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God. That's the, arguably, his presentation of himself to the Father in his perpetual blood offering in the heavens. Purify our conscience, or consciousness better, from dead works so that we can serve the living God. So you want to leave something so much better to go back to something not quite good enough, huh? And you know what they're thinking? They're going, we never thought of that. We never, what? We never even dreamed it. What? God, through the Holy Spirit, gave an innovation through this writer to save an act of apostasy that would have been tragic, not only for that little house church, but for history itself all the way up to our own time. The Holy Spirit is nudging us right now, nudging us to a new insight, to a new differentiation of consciousness, to a new level of inner subjective peace, to a new level of inner subjective feeling, if you want to call it that, of relief and forgiveness so that we can forgive ourselves as well as others. And we can forgive others as well as ourselves. And we can pray and know what it means to say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others who trespass against us. And so, Father, we thank you for this opportunity today. We know that the word of God, the sword of the word, has brought forth a very sharp edge today. It's piercing to the dividing asunder of soul from spirit. It's doing something in us that's an operation a surgery of sorts that makes us make distinctions we've never made before in our mind. And so, Father, as the word has been wielded with its cutting edge, we pray that everyone who heard this message today in this place and beyond this place will benefit by it beyond what we could ask or think because that's the realm where you work. When the work has to be beyond what men and women can ask or think, that's your work, Father. So it's time for you now to work. In Jesus' name, amen.